Welcome everyone. Um, I'm Jacebella Smith. We are in the photo book book group and I'm so excited to have some time to talk with Matt Eck and to really unpack his process. Um, Matt and I met, I think it was SPE the first time. Um, and I was just honestly just so impressed with your thoughtfulness. Um, and that is actually uh, something that just exudes from your photography. Um, so this was really exciting to be able to, to start talking about this work. So I'm gonna um, just do uh, a brief bio. And in terms of um, housekeeping, um, I work in a, in a studio of artisans. So if you hear noise, that's happening. And Matt's in his studio with his kids above his head, and you may hear them too. Um, I want to thank Deb, who is my media coordinator and my right hand through all this. And uh, we find that Zoom is the Wild West still, even though we're like 10 months into it and stuff happens. And we just all try to uh, move forward through it. It's often now become comical. Um, and we are going to open uh, with an unscripted conversation. I'm going to roll through the PDF of The Invisible Yoke, Volume 3. I also have another PDF to jump over to. Um, because Matt's in his studio, we can also pull up some resources from where he is. Um, but we want to leave plenty of time for people to ask questions. And when we have a small enough group, um, meaning under 30, it's, it's, it often works to just um, unmute yourself when we get to that point. Um, it's weird with Zoom, obviously, because sometimes you can get connected at the same time as someone else, but we'll figure it out. Um, and the chat um, is really great to share resources. And just to let you know that afterwards, um, we will coordinate a, a summary of this and have the uh, recording available. And um, one of the things I find so exciting is how much resource sharing happens in these. And um, so if you want to post your question in the chat, you can, or you can ask it yourself. Um, but if you have resources or if this sparks something that you're thinking of, please share that in the chat too. Um, so Matt, um, Matt, I love this, is a photographic essayist. I'm going to use that again. That's really a beautiful way of describing how you work on long-term projects. And you relate a lot to memory, family, community, and you're really seeking to, I'd say, explore and um, visualize um, the American condition. Uh, you're an assistant professor of photojournalism at the Conquerance School of Art and Design at George Washington University. And I love how your work is across such various systems. Um, you've had work commissioned and worked with clients like Patagonia or Tiffany or Apple, which in itself, those three are really diverse. And then the publications that you've been in are varied as well. You've gotten in published in Vice, The New Yorker, The Atlantic. So I think it really speaks to the expansiveness of your work to talk to so many layers of an audience. Um, this is your third monograph, um, the third volume. So the first was Sin and Salvation in Baptist Town, which is based in Mississippi, and Carry Me, Ohio, um, Carry Me, Ohio, which was your second, and this being the third. And all I want to um, quote at the moment, I'll come back, is that I loved when you were um, written and interviewed by Kate 
is it Lithicum from the New Yorker, um, where she noted that you captured visual echoes. And I thought that was a beautiful way to talk about your work. So welcome Matt. And we're here to talk about your work, your creative process and, and your bookmaking. Um, hang on, now I've already got my tech. There we go. Um, do you want to give us a sense of the trajectory of the first two that made this the third? Sure. Is that a good place to start? Yeah, so they actually came out with uh, Carry Me Ohio first. That was work that I began in 2006 when I was studying photojournalism at Ohio University. And I mm -hmm. self-published a limited edition version of that in 2010. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess a copy from, we kind of adapted it for a blurb competition um, because I was trying to, put the work into the world a little more effectively than I could on my own and looking for some financial support in that endeavor. So made a book maquette for the blurb competition and somehow one of those copies ended up in a rare bookstore in California. And the Swiss publisher, Rado Cadiff, who runs Sturm and Drang was in California in that bookstore, asked the owner if he had any interesting photography that he'd come across and was handed that book. So. Um, at that point, uh, it was maybe like 2014, 2015, I've been making maquettes of that work for a while. Uh, the limited edition had sold out. I paid for that with my wife's student loan money and had to sell a bunch of copies really quickly to make the money back and had a couple copies left over that I used to send to editors, curators, and folks. Um, so. I didn't think anybody was crazy enough to publish four books in a series. I figured I was going to have to bring it under one roof. So in 2013, I did a residency at Lightwork and I worked with Mike Davis, who's a photo editor and his wife, Deb Davis, who's an amazing designer. And we put together this maquette, which I self-published uh, with Conveyor Arts in New Jersey. We did an edition of 12 and the goal was to send those to publishers and try and find a place to, you know, put the work under one roof kind of. And I'd been working on these four separate volumes that I hadn't really planned in the beginning, but through making the work, began searching out threads that connected them and realizing that there was a lot that they shared in common. Um, and so that they felt like they belonged together and in conversation in some way. So Rato reached out and asked if I'd be interested in publishing Carry Me Ohio, which was interesting as a prospect on its own, but I was mostly thinking about that in conversation with these other bodies of work. And so I asked him if he would want to do that. Um, wildly, he agreed. And we've been on that journey ever since. I've published a couple other things outside of the Invisible Yoke series, but it began in 2016 with Carry Me Ohio. As it turned out, that was the election year uh, where Trump got elected and everybody uh, started thinking, what's going on in middle America? Why, why did it, you know, why did everybody vote for Trump? And so the book sold out really quickly to rise. Um, and then that led us up to 2018 when we published Senate Salvation in Baptist Town, which is drawn from seven years of work made in rural Mississippi in Greenwood. 
that started as an assignment for AARP. The Carry Me Ohio work started as class assignments for school and kind of stretched out over a 10 year period. And as I was making a lot of the work in Ohio and Mississippi, I was living in southeastern Virginia along the coast in Norfolk, just near where I grew up. Uh, I grew up in some rural peanut farming communities, um, Suffolk and Smithfield. And when I moved back after school with my family, I felt like I was able to see the place with fresh eyes and engage with it on a different level. When I was leaving high school, I really felt the need to escape where I came from. Mm -hmm. um, so coming back and trying to engage with being a father and a member of this community and um, juggling that while also traveling around the country for assignments and for personal projects, making this work gave me a sense of grounding or footing. And so the, the most recent volume came out this year, it was planned for last year, but things happen. I'm kind of astounded. I mean, I'm writing down some of this just so I remember it, but I think it's so interesting when people are on our, our book group looking at how to relate to someone else who has a, a physical book and how they published. And then my interest, and I think several other people's, is how did you get there? And I love that you basically unpacked this idea that your class assignments put you into the Ohio landscape, the serendipity of a book publisher finding from Europe, finding your piece in a California bookstore. Um, and then this idea that uh, the timing of, you know, here you are like Ohio, all of a sudden you gave a, you gave a glimpse into what people had overlooked, frankly, or were not quite in touch with. Um, and then this idea that when you did touch base with a publisher, you had this idea of the, you know, the threads that you had pulled together became quite a solid foundation to be able to say to the publisher, my work is in conversation. So what a great collaboration that they were able to see that too and to, to support you through that. Yeah, um, struck by that. And that's been one of the things that's kept us working together in this process is, um, this kind of ongoing conversation that we have and that the work is having. And all of this unfolded at a rather unlikely time when I was in graduate school pursuing an MFA. I'd kind of put the invisible yoke on the back burner because when I introduced it uh, to the grad school audience, they really weren't very interested in that and frankly pushed me as far away from that kind of mode of working as they could. And that resulted in its own book which was published in 2017 by Seba Editions. That one's called I Love You, I'm Leaving. I Love You, I'm Weeping? Leaving. I didn't hear you. I Love You, I'm Leaving. Got it. I got it. Um, how does that body of work fit into, like, do you feel that is uh, organically yours or do you feel like it was a result of being pushed in a per particular direction? It's definitely organically mine, uh, but it was a difficult time in graduate school where the essential practice is to burn you to the ground and then see what rises from the ashes. That's a direct quote from one of the professors. Um, mm -hmm. Ouch. You know, it, it was a good time to reevaluate modes of working, oh. and especially when you're working kind of within the editorial system. It's very 
fast paced and there isn't a lot of time to question your practice and how you're working and if it's the most effective way and being surrounded by a you know supportive cohort of classmates and professors and uh, folks for an incubator period of two years it's it's a good time to push boundaries and move beyond what you've been kind of doing for a while uh, so that was rewarding and it's led me into some more recent work that's going to kind of follow the Invisible Yoke series and it's stylistically shifting but also thematically connected. Interesting so I feel like um, I don't have a knowledge of the um, I love you I'm leaving to, to know but you're raising something very interesting which is um, you correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing is you have a parallel um, expression going on uh, so that you've seen threads through the work of the invisible yoke, but you're also, there's, it feels to me like there's a part of you that is also cooking and you're being, being coming back around to it. Is that accurate? Yeah, there's multiple things cooking simultaneously. <laughs> always. Uh, and that's kind of what's, especially at, at a time like this, what's keeping me sane because uh, I kind of, I was running hard for 15 years, 2005, up until early this year, pandemic happened, everything shut down. I can't be out making work anymore. So I'm obviously trying to make work at home as best I can with successes and failures along the way, but trying to use this time to make things that I can put into the world, which is where zines uh, are kind of a perfect companion to some of these books where they're a little less serious, a little more, uh, I don't know, freestyle. Mm -hmm. So I want to, um, I, I want to be able to show some of the images, but you've got me intrigued. So uh, is there a way that you would formulate this practice of yours. There's multiple things cooking. You found the outlet of the zines to be um, kind of stepping stones maybe or stepping off one path like wholeheartedly. Um, uh, so if you could put it into words, what's driving you? The need to make and books for me are the best possible form to put my photographs in, they're complicated. It's mm -hmm. something you can live with and grow with and spend time with if you wish to and return to again and again. Shows are temporary. The web is a black hole for creativity um, mm -hmm. or for experiencing art in my personal opinion. Uh, editorial outlets, you know, that work has a very temporary shelf life. So books, I think, have lasting power, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, hopefully. And so I, you know, I'm constantly experimenting with different ways to make books. And that's gone back to undergrad. I was self-publishing little kind of portfolios using the university press. I've never been super... Um, handy like some of my friends and colleagues that will literally you know print and bind and make their own objects I deeply admire that and respect it but I would rather be making pictures than like binding I do get a lot of pleasure out of packaging and shipping publications however there's 
a side of my brain that, that I can turn off and then just kind of get into the zone. I don't know if y'all have watched Parks and Rec, but like, like my kids compare me to Jerry when he's licking envelopes. Um, yeah, so. That's probably such a nice um, kind of autopilot place, mm -hmm. but being productive. Um, let's look at some images, but um, how did you become an essayist? What was it that drew you to long-term projects? So most of this work has, has been kind of a slow process of self-discovery and that mm -hmm. comes through questioning the practice and what you're up to and just being in conversation with people that are smarter than me, which is pretty easy, most people are. So I, I just try and share work with people, receive feedback and think about what I'm doing. And coming from that photojournalism background, everything's kind of now, now, now. And uh, I realized that I didn't work very well in that mode. And that when I found myself in a new situation, my instinct was not to necessarily run towards it. I will if I have to, but like if I see a scrum of photographers around something, I'm gonna turn the other direction and find something else to look at. Uh, yeah, so I keep, finding myself drawn to the edges of things and, and less to notable figures or notable moments, though there are definitely historic moments kind of wrapped up in certain books that I've been making. Um, mm -hmm. Hello. It's being, I'm sorry. Like say hello to everybody okay. And um, the final volume in the Invisible Yoke series, there are some kind of news scenes and situations from like, uh, Ferguson after Mike Brown was murdered to the Unite the Right rally, which happened in Charlottesville. Like there, there's some news, but typically not seen in that direct way. Um, mm, yeah, uh, almost a, a, a well, 360, well-rounded, and and it really points to one of our issues is that we are fed, um, we're fed images that um, complete a narrative that is not necessarily uh, a thoughtful one. Um, and uh, so we definitely need more feet on the ground thinking through at those moments. Um, so thank you for that witness, because I think that's really gonna help us know the truth. Um, it made me think of with the seven cities that one of the issues coming up is obviously some of them won't be there by 2040 if we aren't going to move in a different direction uh, because of climate change. Yeah, so this area that I grew up in, it's along the coast, it's home to the largest naval base in the world. And it's a pretty diverse area, uh, not topographically, it's very flat, um, but it gets a certain quality of light. Uh, and there's people from all over because of the military and because of its proximity to the coast. Got Virginia Beach, which is a big tourist destination. Um, but while there are some pictures from some of the larger metro areas, I was also spending a lot of time kind of in the rural towns, which felt more familiar to my childhood. This is Colonial Williamsburg, obviously lots of history kind of layered into the landscape as well. It feels as if you, um, speaking of echoes, um, I feel like you're capturing parts that that echo colonial history, um, slavery, uh, 
racist issues, uh, poverty, so that it's um, woven through. Yeah, each one of the books definitely deals with uh, issues of socioeconomic disparity and division. Uh, some touch on issues of race. Each one is kind of shaped by at least the first three volumes are all geographically connected to something. So Caring Ohio is predominantly southeastern Ohio. Sin and Salvation is all in Greenwood, Mississippi and the surrounding Lafleur County. Um, the Seven Cities is it's kind of an opening up a little bit because instead of being one town, it was this group of nine cities in two counties, I think is what it breaks down to, but they call it the seven cities or used to. It's, it's now dubbed Hampton Roads, which isn't quite as great a book title. So the seven cities is what we ended up with. Um, and then the final volume, We the Free, which is due out next year, is going to be looking at America the Whole. So it'll be a bit more expansive um, in that way, but still trying to deal with these legacies that continue to impact present day Americans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Again, um, so timely in the sense, you know, the fact that you're bringing out work that's asking us to look at the impact of legacy is certainly um, an overriding lesson of this year. Um, similar in the way that in 2016, not concentrating on either coast of America was something we needed to focus on too. So another timely. Um, in terms of the um, We the Free and what's coming, I know when I was looking at your work, I, I was struck with like, what makes the cut? And, and I wanted to understand if you shoot and then think about what else needs to be there. Like, I don't know if you're responding to um, the work or if you're pre-envisioning any of it. Uh, it. It's a really interesting mix and I was curious about like kind of the chicken and the egg or what comes first. I mean, I, that's a great question because a lot of people kind of assume that you go out with an idea and then, you know, you fulfill that idea, but I find that to be a kind of boring uh, way of going about things. I'm, I'm typically not a concept first photographer. I stumble into a lot of things like this beach scene. I was there with my family, but also, of course, had every intention of photographing. So I had my camera with me. I, my dad and one of my daughters are in this scene. Um, but typically, there was a, an idea driven home in grad school that I think is applicable, which is the pictures are smarter than you are. Listen to them and they'll to go. So a lot of it is just making photographs and a lot of them on a regular ba basis, you know, kind of building that into your daily practice. And then the constant shifting and sifting of photographs, figuring out what's going to rise through the ranks over the years but there's long periods of just making and not really looking or thinking about them as a whole, and then periods of evaluation. So as I mentioned before, I work with a photo editor named Mike Davis, who you know, comes from the world of newspapers and magazines, but now teaches. And he's been 
somebody who's been really instructive and informative in this process because I will typically deliver a, a wide lump of photographs, you know, in the thousands, and then he will whittle that down to a few hundred, and then that's where the publisher and I start going back and forth, saying what are the ones that we feel absolutely need to be in here, and see where that leads us. But before arriving at the book, typically. You know, I'm showing work to peers and colleagues and thinking about what holes exist, what am I not showing that I should be showing, what am I maybe showing too much of, and, you know, it's shifting work in one direction or another, but there's always this conversation that's unfolding, typically on a few different levels. So if we could think about the Baptist Town book as an example, I was making that work, bringing prints back to the community so they could see it and understand how I saw them. Made a book maquette through Blurb, you know, just as a print on demand, one off, brought that down, showed it to one of my main friends, collaborators there. He took it, showed it around the community, brought feedback back to me from community members. That was terrifying. Um, and then Brave. in the process of making the book, uh, of course, me and Mike, then me and the publisher, and then I'm putting the stuff up on the wall and friends are coming through the studio and saying, hmm, all right, well, maybe you don't need this many guns in the book, or maybe you don't need to show this aspect or that. Um, maybe it could be alluded to more subtly. And I think that that's what helps push and pull things into the final shape, so that kind of process. And the seven cities, you know, was working with Mike and working with the publisher and getting it to I think it was it was probably a little too family heavy when Mike did his first edit and sequence and so we really had to to work to find a better balance in the overall structure um, and then I'm showing it to friends that have a connection to the region or to the work and seeing what their reaction is. So my buddy, Rich Joseph Facoon, who has been a friend and mentor for many, many years now, he worked for the newspaper in that area uh, for a number of years. He looked at it and he was like, here's three holes that I see, three things that are important to this region that you might want to try and make. And I did my, my level best and I got maybe one or two of those three. Um, you know, so you can't win them all, but that sort of feedback I find to be really invaluable. Well, the, there, it goes again in terms of your expansiveness and your willingness to um, uh, integrate feedback and, and utilize it. And I think, I mean, I'm assuming that your trust is in the photographs to uh, be smarter and to keep you on track um, and, and allowing other people to have those reactions and input. Uh, it, that it, it's, so I, I just keep thinking of um, uh, weaving, right? And how many threads that that is making such a strong statement. Um, and uh, goes back to the thoughtfulness. And I was thinking that when you said that um, initially the, um, your photo editor helps uh, break down from the thousands, um, I was wondering if you go back in there and say, well, wait, didn't you like this one? Or don't you think this is important? Like I wondered where you get into um, 
discerning together because I, I do a lot of that collaborating and it's a really interesting process of um, sussing out um, like images will fight for. Um, and, and then it sounds like, you know, that overall, I wonder did the, when the publisher came in, was it, was it the two of you working together that saw that the family was a little more weighted than you thought was best? Um, so it's, that's an interesting kind of accordion there. And I guess it goes back and forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you have to trust your gut. And I'm really fortunate to have a group of peers and colleagues that I like and trust. And they're willing to still look at my crap after all these years. Like that, that's something. But we're, we try and be generous with one another. So like Rich is publishing his first book really soon. Uh, called Black Diamonds. It's going to be published with Fall Line Press next year. It's a really lovely book, also set in the foothills of southeastern Ohio. And he's going to be releasing this about, I guess, five years after I published my book. And it's his perspective on this place where we both went to school and where he now lives with his family. Um, so, like, I've been on that journey with him preparing that book, and he's been on this journey with me watching this book come together over many years. So interesting, because that's like, um, I just think speaks to the power of um, allowing the time for things to exist and then weave together. Uh, nothing's flash in the pan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, again, that's kind of the pushback against that immediacy of, of the news and how quickly things leave people's consciousness. like. Photography is supposed to be lasting, um, and if it if we're not thinking about it in that way, then it's not going to function properly. And I think that was another serious lesson that Mike has been driving home over the years: is how to break from that idea of thinking about what what functions now and think about it. How do we read these pictures in five, twenty, fifty years? What is it going to speak to then? Because the hope is That's this us. Right. And that struck me. And that was also part of, I think, the essay was, um, and we'll get to that, I have the PDF of, of just um, starting the conversation about where an image lives, depending on where you are, and what the varying visitations are like, and how Obviously, the image doesn't change. You do. Mm -hmm. And our reading right? changes in time. Right, right. So I was curious. Um, I wrote a question about that. Um, if you were chronicle chronicling in any way your conversation as it changes over time. In what way? Like, like I, I'm just thinking, like even this, I love that we stopped on this image because that, that box of teeth just about made me cry when I saw it. And, and, and literally it went through my head and this is personal and weird, but it's true. I was like, my mother had our teeth in her top bureau drawer that, and I'm thinking as a kid, like, ew, and that is so gross. And, and I was just like, why does she do that? And then of course, 
I have a box with my kids' teeth in it. And it's like, like when I saw that, it, it literally, like my box and my mother's box looks different than your blue box, but I was like, boom, back in there. And the layers of that, right? It made me aware of my little self wondering what the hell the teeth were doing in my mother's bureau and then myself as a mother. Um, so you do that to people with your images and I'm thinking you're thoughtful and, and I guess I would say analytical. So I'm really curious about um, like this, like what we're talking about in the process because you're weaving so many things together and, and then how do those things look to you from another vantage point? Well, we, we were talking a little bit earlier about this idea of distance between making and thinking. And I think that that's become more and more important in my practice. Um, and something I try and impress on students as well, though they don't have the benefit of that during the semester where everything's compressed by deadlines. Sometimes those deadlines at least it pushing you to the next place you need to go or the next kind of articulation of your work. But, um, you know, I can't force a book to fit a deadline. That's for damn sure. And that's one thing that I'm grateful that my publisher hasn't held me to because as I mentioned before, this was due out last year and it needed more time. Like the essays weren't turned in. So <laughs> what can we do if we don't have any <laughs> to contribute to this? Um, mm -hmm. Force it. And having that distance to read the pictures with the benefit of some uh, space between how you feel when you make it and how you feel when you view it, I think it's important and to be able to sit with those feelings because they will evolve in time. And that's also why I have this group of peers and editors that I surround myself with because they have their own life experiences and they have their own ways of reading the photographs and they're gonna show me things that I wouldn't see on my own and help elevate things that maybe I hadn't given a second chance and they'll help squash things that maybe I'm too personally attached to that don't have the openness or resonance that we're looking for and discussing. Um, and, you know, it's this kind of slow, gradual process. It's, you know, if something lasts in the uh, um, process of making a body of work over five, 10, 15 years, and, and you can still come back to it and find something new or feel a certain way, then yeah, maybe it can stick around and last in the edit. I don't know if that answers your Are, question. Do you write at all? A little bit. Writing is a kind of slow and painful process for me. I write short statements that go in the back of the book. Um, I do write some short poems. Um, artist statements and grants, but that's, it's not very fun, not very sexy, the grant writing. Got one that's due at five o'clock mm. today that I, I will turn my attention to when this is done. Um, and that feels pretty utilitarian, trying to fit these ideas that I have a hard time speaking aloud, you know, into some sort of form that people can say, yeah, we'll, we'll give you some money to go do that crazy sounding thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, contextualizing work is, is really challenging. Um, and that idea of keeping uh, all those pieces going at the same time, the grant writing, the making, the thinking, um, 
teaching <laughs> it is it is a tall order but i was thinking teaching right other things to make a living and and then being in your life and being a parent if that's what you're doing um i was thinking about the essay and that you also had two poems in the um the book can i go back i didn't get to ask but where did the title of the invisible yoke originate in long conversations with friends and colleagues about what I was trying to do with the work, which is, it kind of stems from this feeling of dissatisfaction with the limitations of photography, light on surface, that's what we're given. But I'm really interested in what's intangible and perhaps unseeable and the things that connect us as Americans. And as I began gathering these essays about these particular places over the years, I was thinking a lot about the weight and burden of memory and the way that that connects us and how um, sometimes we can have an image of a place in our minds, even if we haven't been there, right? And I think that that has to do with our exposure to historic documentary photography, the FSA or you know, Life Magazine, right? Like National Geographic, you, you get this idea of a place without actually being there. And that's presented to you through the world of photographs. Um, it connects us, but it's also a burden for people that live in this place to break beyond. It's something that I struggled to break beyond in making work that felt representational of a place and realized that at least in my Kind of limited know-how it it's always going to be this very small reflection of my personal experience in this space and it can't be more than that it's not going to be a holistic view of greenwood mississippi or the seven cities or america at large right all i can show is a sliver but photography is also about subtraction it's about reduction um, so i have to choose these really uh emotionally resonant connected kind of photographs to speak to that feeling. I don't know if that ramble makes any sense, but that's, that's me attempting. Uh, actually, it, it certainly did make sense to me and I love the contextualization of it. You're talking about that idea of preconceived notions. And, and if you think about what we were fed, um, there's layers to uh, who's making the images, how it's getting disseminated. Um, and and there is, for lack of a better word, a lot of manipulation in that, conscious or unconscious. And I think you're talking about how do you break out of that? Just like you were saying that the, the next book is going to have some actual things like events in Ferguson speaking in it, but it's going to not be coming from the lens of a photojournalist or a major media outlet. Um, it's, it's so much more humane, actually, which is why I think it's so necessary to get to the, to the truth of the things. So yeah, it made sense to me. And of course it made me think of one of my favorite words and ideas is punctum. Do you use that at all in your vernacular? Or I don't know if you use it at all in your teaching or? 
it comes up in conversations, but you know, especially when we're thinking about pictures as they live on the wall or on a book page, trying to use the object of the book to create a space that the picture can live within and have a sense of discovery for the viewer where they can find things hidden in the photograph. Hopefully that again, encourages multiple viewings, multiple readings of the image. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had a kind of amazing and almost embarrassing experience. I hung a show. I mean, okay, I curated the show. I selected the images. I hung the show and I walked by this image and literally jumped back because how many times had I seen it and I had not seen this one part and it was like as if it was a whole new image and I'd been dealing with that image for like six weeks mm -hmm. and I'd walked by it I mean I hung it and I'd walked by it a few times it was astounding it was really fun and it and it just like sticks in my mind like how much you can look at something and you just don't see everything really it's fascinating and that's interesting too because we often don't take time right when you were talking about the 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 black hole of looking on screens at things you know we zip i think we have like i i, I don't know the statistic off the top of my head but like the screen time that you give is in seconds right and the idea that you would actually take a minute with something is, is a big deal, which is really, really sad. Um, this lends me to um, the question I had about the moving image because you've been playing with that and I actually posted some of them. The, the image on the left is in the moving image. So where did that come into your work or your workflow or your process? To be honest, I haven't played with the moving image as much in the last few years, but at the time I was making this work, was using DSLRs for a lot of it, though this picture made in 2005, that was long before they integrated video into DSLRs, but at the time that I was kind of making the later work in the series, um, in, you know, like 2011, 2012, um, that was a new thing that we could shoot video with our DSLRs. So I was kind of alternating between these at the time in Mississippi and in Hampton Roads largely thinking about kind of the possibilities of the moving image and how it could occupy a space in conversation with still photographs and how they like pictures mm -hmm. words can kind of serve different roles so there were certain things that i made both video and still of and there were certain things that only spoke to me as motion um, but the seven cities project before it was a book it was an exhibition at the virginia museum of contemporary art in 2013 and we did, I think it was about 40 prints, like a, a grid of iPhone photographs, a video projection that looped two or three separate videos. Like, and yeah, there was another um, looping slideshow that was kind of a tertiary series connected to the larger set. So it was a lot of different ideas that I was trying to connect within that space. So the videos that you were sharing snippets from were drawn from one of those installations. I find that that's more prevalent that we're being given things in multiple forms. Would it's you agree? Or, hmm? It's easier to do these days for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
but I also found that it split my attention and sometimes negatively impacted my ability to make what I really wanted to make. So I've also shifted away from using tools that have video capabilities in recent years. I'm using medium format digital and film cameras these days that I don't want to shoot video or, or can't shoot video on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, there was something that came out of the show. Um, oh, I know that there's a show now that you're a part of. Um, let me just look at my notes because I thought um, the art of gathering at the Chrysler mm-hmm. and some of your work is in that show. Yep, they've got a picture from the seven cities that's um, and that was kind that's of a pop-up thing that they decided to do during COVID time to remind us what it feels like to be together. Well, it was interesting because I, I got led to that at some point and it talked about being together in celebration and it was being together in celebration, purpose, justice, and love. And it struck me that that's, that to me is almost a subtitle of what I think you're doing. That's kind of you to say. Certainly am trying to look for the things that connect us more than separate us, but it's hard to know how pictures are gonna function long-term um, as best we can when putting these objects together and trying to play with that a little bit. Mm-hmm. I remember um, at one of my uh, first viewings of the book, how I was struck by this image. Yeah, this one kind of connects to my practice in an interesting way. So at the time we moved to Norfolk, was a young father, the Virginian pilot was a newspaper that I grew up admiring and seeing on a daily basis. It influenced my photography and, and what I ended up studying in college. So. Uh, they had an opening at the time we moved back. I thought this is perfect. I'll get a staff job and then I'll have a paycheck and I'm not going to have to struggle and suffer all the time. Um, I, I did not get that job. Instead, a few wonderful friends and colleagues got hired there. And while I didn't get a job, I got a great cohort of peers and collaborators. So the woman on the right is Amanda Lucier, who was a staffer at the Virginian Pilot. And when I was making this work, she was dating a, a guy who was a riverine. And so I'd you know, been in discussions with her about the project and about my practice pretty regularly because we actually lived in the same neighborhood. We shared a fence, her backyard abutted ours. And so we started doing these regular photo nights um, where people would come to her garage and we would project pictures and um, do kind of mini crits. And then people would jump the fence and drink on my porch until the wee hours of the morning. So that was my photo community at the time was Amanda, Ross Taylor, Preston Ganaway, some of the pilot staffers. Um, And this picture came about again because she was familiar with what I was up to and I asked if she'd be willing to let me photograph her with her partner, Josh, thinking a portrait at best, you know, as they were getting ready to go to this military ball. And she proposed to me instead that what would you do if you were given the access that we always dream of? And I said, I don't know. Like, tell me what that means. Uh, and she said, well, how about you come over at four? We'll leave the door unlocked. We know you, you let yourself in and you can begin making pictures. 
So wow. I did that, let myself in before they weren't in front. I found them in the back in bed. He had his shirt off. He's covered in tats and had his arms wrapped around her. They were waking up from a nap. And despite our shared friendship, like it still felt incredibly awkward to be allowed into that space, but it was, it felt like a gift. And so I photographed them getting ready. And this was one of the last pictures before they left. She was asking him a question, but there's a kind of strange tension in this picture that, you know, at the time there was nothing wrong in their relationship that shortly after he was deployed and came back with PTSD and the relationship fell apart. So to complete the experiment, we left our side door unlocked one Saturday morning and Amanda crept in and photographed me in bed with my wife and with my daughter <laughs> while our older daughter was watching cartoons in the morning. And we had this conversation about what it felt like to be on the receiving end of that. And again, it was just kind of a good lesson about what we ask of the people we photograph in an intimate way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. And it makes, I mean, that's rare. Um, and it makes me think of the show at the Metropolitan that was um, Talking Pictures, which was the people talking between each other uh, photographically. Um, but this is such an interesting, it is a gift. And, and yeah, that's what I'm thinking about when I think about you writing about your experiences, that those are really uh, informative formative, you know, they're another layer to this. Like when I, like this photograph um, stopped me and I was aware of so many things going on at the same time. Meanwhile, not knowing anything at the same time, but it's like almost like a short story. Like I've just felt dropped in to a life and, um, you know, the composition of the image really intrigues me and and the crop and not seeing her but like comp not seeing her head but completely getting like this emotion um that gesture goes back to that line that the woman wrote about in the new yorker like the echo of something um i think you've really achieved a, an amazing subtlety and then when i look at this on my screen which lets me see the 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 images the reflections within the window on the left um and then ironically the reflections in the door are of more brick so it's almost like a glass that's impenetrable right or showing you something um and then that there's even the glass on the the ledge yeah really really interesting that's why i would um when you aren't writing grants and curriculum, I think notes about you and your thought process would be really interesting to be able to, to hear. Because I also learned, uh, you know, is it the Stellars twins that you? Oh. Yeah. So that like you get close to people you know, not necessarily your neighbor, right? That you share a beer and have a lot of intimate knowledge of, but the people that you've gone to photograph, you form relationships with. Oftentimes, um, the final volume will probably be 
a little less long relationships um, and more, you know, here and there in America. Um, but yeah, the uh, Ohio work, I started photographing the Sellers family in 2006 and I'm still in touch with them and still see them whenever I can. Mississippi, I'm in touch with some of the folks down there that I met in 2010, you know, and I'm still trying to maintain a relationship from afar. It's been about a year and a half since I've been able to visit there. Seven cities, my family kind of took center stage within this narrative and, you know, I was examining our roles and relationships within this space, but still trying to connect to other members of the community in this time. So your family, both your wife and your kids, but also your parents? So in this image, this is my father helping my sister move into an apartment building. And there's all kinds of layers of family drama that <laughs> surrounds this. But, you know, it's, um, it's a picture that to an outsider doesn't read as anything necessarily, but um, has lots of other layers of meaning to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is an example of a photograph that I had not made when the book was in the early editing stages. I showed it to Rich and one of his holes that he identified was there's a really strong Filipino community here that's part of the fabric of this place. Where are they in your pictures? And I thought, you know what? I don't have any pictures that speak to the Filipino community or their experience in Hampton Roads. How would I do that? And started asking and eventually got connected to a family that invited me in for a meal and they fed me and I spent a couple hours with them and I made this picture. And that was kind of the extent of our interaction. They were incredibly generous and sweet. Um, and I hope that this picture kind of reflects some piece of their warmth that they extended to me. Um, but yeah, that was an example of something that I did not have in the beginning and then had to go back and try and make. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I saw earlier there's a question yep. about um, technical process, camera lens, post-production, etc. Um, and mm -hmm. jump on that briefly. Sure. Tools have changed over the years. So the Care Me Ohio work started when I was using an eight megapixel digital camera on JPEG. Uh, and I would kick my younger self if I could, but that's, that's what we were doing. Uh, and over the years it shifted, but Care Me Ohio, Sin and Salvation, Seven Cities, and We the Free are all 35 millimeter color digital using a variety of tools, mostly Canon DSLRs up to Sony RX1R2. 35 millimeter lens is kind of my go-to in terms of post-production. I've got a very simple formula that I do for camera raw or Lightroom to keep things consistent. And uh, I guess a few years ago I started, it's probably 2013, 2014, I started using medium format film that took the forefront in graduate school and kind of led me into a new series of work. And so now I'm mixing medium format digital and medium format film. I use a Fuji GFX 50R for digital and I use an Amiya 7 primarily for film. That is a thorough response. <laughs> 
and it is interesting right because uh, the tools <laughs> are, are that they're tools it's like a hammer for banging out pictures what kind of picture do you want to bang out today let's uh let's find the right tool for it and sometimes my favorite tool isn't the like easiest one to or it's like the right tool isn't the easiest one to use sometimes yep yep i got talked out of i had um a camera that I adored with literally screw on lenses. And um, I think it was the Bell and Howell lens and a Canon camera. And it was super old. And I just had three lenses and they felt like the best worn set of things. And I was kind of getting laughed out of photographing with them because it was like, what? And I have never felt as comfortable with anything else since. It was like a big boohoo that I let them go funny right so I kick my younger self that I let someone talk me out of getting a different setup and letting that one go yeah wow this makes me think of sequencing yeah, the one What's on the that like? My niece's birthday, and the one on the right is the funeral for a 13 year old girl named Kelly Valentine, who mm -hmm. was tragically killed crossing a street and got hit by a car. Mm -hmm. Amazing the use of color between these two as well. Um, when you do sequence, is that work that? you work out with the publisher do you that's all in conversation yes. with mike and with the publisher and with friends and colleagues again just kind of looking for like Rolls are in. we hitting a roadblock here like how is this functioning are you moving through it and music is a huge part of it for me where there's always something playing in the studio and i'm trying to think about how do we create kind of a rise and fall and a flow that moves things through the book Books are different than cinema because cinema is locked into an experience in terms of the sequence in which you receive it. But like, I just handed my mother a maquette the other day and I watched her open it and flip it from the back to the front. And that was a good reflection to me that can you have to have things that can be met, can be read in multiple directions. Uh, people will open the book in the middle and then flip to the front and then flip to the back it's got to be malleable in some way. It can't be constrained. And so sequencing has to work in multiple directions. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you've achieved that? Or do you feel like now with that insight, you're going to focus on that in a new way? I mean, I don't think you ever achieve it, but that's always been something that's factored into the conversations when making these books. And me I have to like a lot of it's on the screen yes but I have to make physical prints and put them up on the wall so to the right yeah, you want to show that yeah there's a grant application taking shape on the wall there I just took the most recent zine off the wall because I was sick of looking at those pictures and had to kind of wipe the slate clean before I actually order the proof for that um, mm -hmm. but the space in the studio is always kind of actively working something out and it, it's a puzzle that doesn't just, so you have to move things until they kind of click together. Yeah, and I think it's funny because I can show you that mine doesn't have images right now because it's my projects, but ooh, I have the same, that whole wall is magnetic. 
And when I work with people, that's what we do. And it makes me think moving around and seeing things like I also have a very long white table. So I'm either looking down and up and that changes things, frankly. Um, and I learned that like what you learned with your mom opening the book. Um, I was going to ask you about residencies and their impact. Um, you mentioned your Lightroom one. Um, for me, I went to a, I've had three residencies and they are, they were extremely life-changing and a amazing sequence. Like it, they just feel like gifts from heaven. But the one that I went to, I was working on, on curriculum and writing, but the uh, studio had two walls that were magnetic floor to ceiling. And I had never put my work up that way. And when you talk about a puzzle, literally my concept aware curriculum came together like Tetris because I had covered two walls with it. And I loved that I had this little uh, mobile um, office chair and I could push back and I'm like, oh my God. And I started moving everything around. And by the end of that residency, I had eight elements that I'm still working with like eight years later. It was fascinating. So um, you had two residencies that you at least I know of. Um, you also have to write for those applications as well. But what what were the what was the second one? It's the uh, the Rauschenberg. What was that like for you? I mean, that was a pretty magical experience. Both have been life changing just because it, it's hard as a their freelance photographer or as a teacher or as a parent to really dedicate yourself to something kind of around the clock for a period of time. So the residencies mm -hmm. that I've done are about a month. Um, the light work one was in 2013 and I made a maquette, but I also printed the Seven Cities exhibition prepared for that while I was there. So that was a really intensive month. Um, and then the one at uh, the Rauschenberg residency last summer was a special gift in a lot of ways because that was, as I was transitioning from being an adjunct professor <laughs> making no money to a full-time professor making enough to exist without freelancing. And that, that's kind of a first for me in, in my professional life. And it was time away to think about how the work was functioning together again, kind of to try and move into these other bodies of work. So I started editing and sequencing uh, Say Hello to Everybody Okay, which is a maquette that I just finished this fall. And that will be sent to publishers looking for something to hopefully drop in 2022, 2023, if I find somebody who's interested in taking it on. Um, and then I was working on zines. I was also experimenting with paint and printing on different media. And I was collaborating with the other artists who were in residence there. I lived in a house with two other amazing artists. And so like we would go to our studios and work and we would share meals as a group. And then we would come back to our place and talk into the wee hours in the morning about art making and the practice of living and making art. Um, which kind of connects to a question that Barbara asked in the chat, which is kind of guidance you would give to students in terms of finding their own voices, like voice is elusive. Most of us spend our whole life in pursuit of our kind of natural, authentic voice. So that's what I tell them. It's a journey. It's slow. It's a process. But if you're not making, you're certainly not going to be figuring out what you want to say and how you want to say it. Um, yeah. So I encourage them to be making on a regular basis. And through that, 
kind of interrogating the pictures, what's working, what's not working. Is this fulfilling me? Is it filling that, that kind of <laughs> creative need that we have? And if not, then maybe there needs to be a shift. I, I uh, do several portfolio reviews uh, and I, I am fortunate to collaborate with artists on their process. And um, I just had an email this morning of uh, someone asking some advice and it mirrored what I heard in a recent portfolio review when the focus is on the viewer response. And I'm like, that's not where the answers are. Just like when you talked about listening to pictures, the pictures are smarter than you. It's like attention to the process lets the product evolve and, and like come to life. Um, and that, that is uh, brave. Sorry about my phone. Oops, oh my goodness. I'll get you on one device or another. Totally. Plus, it was a spam. <laughs> Total waste. Um, the light is amazing. But I think when, the um, I also try and tell students to trust their subconscious. That that's really what what it's about. That idea of listening to the pictures is that your subconscious is at work and it's a few steps ahead of your conscious mind. And if you can read that from your photographs and hopefully that will be a beacon of light along the way as we all stumble through the dark woods together. Yeah, there's um, there is a quote that I often uh, refer to, at least in my mind. Uh, I, um, Carl Jung talks about the idea of um, spiraling and that we um, our, our unconscious is always trying to come to consciousness and it's a relationship of allowing that to happen and the idea of a spiral of you come back around to some of the same issues but you're coming deeper and I think that um, I think you achieve that by the time you take and the the information you take along the way really allows you to to do that and when you do that you're drilling down um, and I think you get to an essence with that like this I, I really did appreciate that there was something about your voice here and I, I was going to ask Two questions, and then I think I, I'm, I I want people to have time too. I want to jump over to the other PDF, but um, in reference to the next book, and how did you photograph other parts of America, or how did you did? Again, I go back to that question of did you exploring in images help form the book, or like, or was the container there? chicken and egg again. <laughs> so going back to these kind of print-on-demand blur maquettes that I was making early on, just as a way of mm -hmm. kind of had to physically hold it to come mm -hmm. to terms with, is this working or not? Because the screen isn't cutting it for me. So I made the things, made a 
Carrie Neal Hyos and Salvation, Seven Cities book, thinking this is going to be a trilogy. And then I did a speed flip through where it's like, I don't know what I expected to get from that, but I was left wanting. Let's, let's put it that way. I was disappointed with the kind of range that it conveyed. And this was, you know, still years ago before any of those projects were fully done. Um, but that signaled to me that there was something else that I needed to make to again, kind of round it out. So I started thinking about pictures that I'd made on assignments and trips and for other kind of failed projects and realized that there was, again, these same connective tissues and threads kind of running through those pictures and started pulling them over into their own little folder and then through time, you know, editing and sequencing some of those together. And I'm deep in that process now. I've got about 5,000 pictures in a folder that I have not uh, unleashed Mike on yet. Mm-hmm. Probably gonna be about 10,000 pictures in the folder before he begins his deep dive. And then he'll probably send me back 300 to 500. And I'm gonna figure out from there, like, is there anything that I feel really has to be in there? And I'll bring that in. And then that's where the editor and I start going to town. Or where the Did you travel? to take more images or well, no? I ran plans for 2020, none of which fully culminated, but I was gonna travel across the country and round out that final volume. But there's thankfully still plenty of pictures that I made over the years. Uh, again, that may not have had a home when they were made or may have been for an assignment that you know wasn't something that was published and now it's gonna find its way into a different form. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So So interesting. What we have pulled up now is the text addendum for the Seven Cities book. And for those who are interested, these are always tucked in the back. Yeah. Because I want to minimize the, um, I don't know, I, I want to minimize the distraction that text can provide in the book as an object. But I want something there that somebody else's voice other than mine um, so this one has a really lovely original poem by Tim Siegels, who is a uh, Virginia resident n- native, um, and then a, a poem by Stevie Smith. And then there's also this essay by Seth Beeman, who's the curator of photography at the Chrysler Museum and a resident Norfolk um, about the work and what he reads in the work. And I've done that for both of the other volumes. Usually the other volumes have pictures contributed by members of the community and I'm trying to incorporate community voices into the text. In this one, the pictures were childhood photographs that I made growing up in the Hampton Roads area. So these were pre-college, pre-professional life, pre-aspirations of being a photographer, photographs that I've made and had kind of hidden away over the years. interesting you still you see the same um landscape with the or seascape i should say yeah yeah so that is uh the idle fleet or the ghost fleet which is a bunch of old military ships that were decommissioned and left to rust in the james river right across from where my grandfather had bought some property long before i was born and most of them are gone now they've been scrapped but that was when there were more in the river when i was a kid and then the picture at the beginning of the book is of my daughters walking where i used to play in the river and there's only one or two of those ghost ships in the background Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Wow, it's so interesting in thinking of the title of his essay, How to Mourn the Living, that idea of like, you know, the passages that go on at the same time. I mean, it, it, it makes me think of how the thoughtfulness, the time that you're giving to things, um, not being on such a fast response mode, um, that's how we deal with grief. We don't give it time. So this idea of mourn the living, it's like, if you're living, there's mourning going on at the same time. And we have a really hard time, it seems, accepting that. Yeah, I feel like Seth's essay really hits hits it pretty, pretty well. Um, talking about this complicated feeling of being in a time where maybe we could reverse our course, but it's not happening. And we're kind of watching that window close. And uh, yeah, definitely paints the, the region with a bleak brush, but I, I think it's, um, it's needed. Yeah, it's a, it's a reality check. Um, I have spoken about this a lot, but there is an article in the Atlantic. Um, I'll put the link in. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm not thinking of the author's name off the top of my head, but the title is about the plastic hour and this idea that in times of great stress, uh, overwhelm, uh, post-tsunami, post a war, uh, post a pandemic, um, there's this elasticity and that paradigms that you couldn't conceive of shifting shift. And it's this plastic hour. And that's what I lean into, that that's my hope. My hope is in our uh, elasticity and our thinking radically using imagination, innovation. Uh, I heard someone on a, a, a something I listened to this morning and the person said, um, and 2020 is the year to forget. And I thought, no, it's not. Um, I also heard this morning someone say 2020 is the year of learning. And, um, you know, when are we going to wake up that you can't have one or the other, right? Like this idea, like, let me forget. Um, and yeah, I hope we take our lessons and I hope we change. That's kind of one of the, the threads running through all of these books is our inability to acknowledge the things that we continue to inflict upon ourselves and our neighbors and the environment. Yeah, yep. I went into 2020, I actually was interviewed for a podcast and said this at the beginning of the pandemic in March. And I, I, I went into 2020 saying, ironic 2020 perfect vision like what are we going to learn what am I going to see better I thought of that in January maybe a little in February and then of course foot on a banana peel in March to thinking about it and and thinking you know in all manner we all have had kind of cataract surgery um and now we have to grow up and deal with that <laughs> and not like put on some other pair of glasses to distort. But let's open up to, to questions. Um, and, and if there's something else you want to share, Matt, too, that I haven't asked about, I have to ask one, sorry, one more question of mine because I couldn't quite 
figure out your end paper and I knew there's something in here and I want to know what it is. So that's my question. If you kind of tip it in the light, you'll yeah. see this pattern and it's a yoke. They're oh, I see it finally. Different. Yeah. I'll I was tipping this a lot. It <laughs> You have to get the right light. Mm -hmm. Yep, it's printed on the end sheets of all of the books. Um, each one has a different color end sheet, and some of them are a little more visible than others, but it's supposed to be hard to see um, that it's there. Mm -hmm. I had, I was like, is it your kid's drawing? I, that's so good. I now know. <laughs> um, and so let's open to questions. I, I'm not reading the chat because that would be a third window I don't need to keep track of. So um, I've got some questions pulled up here. One from perfect. Divya, um, who's asking about uh, photojournalism coming from that world and when photographers dip their feet into fine art, sometimes they completely immerse themselves into that realm. Could you talk about documenting and presenting a fact and then creating images, creating a story, which has its own connotation? Um, yeah, I, I guess to that, I came from the world of photojournalism, but never felt like I was fully at home there. I would go to meetings at magazines and they would say, your work feels like maybe it belongs in a gallery. And then you'd go to the gallery and the gallery's like, your work feels like it belongs more in magazines. And so you start thinking, I guess my work exists in this orphan space. And over time, I started to think of that less as a problem and more of maybe as a gift because it just gives you the freedom to work on what you do instead of trying, like, of course I had to monetize photography in different ways as a young father trying to support a family, but um, it usually just led to a lot of grief. Um, sometimes it enabled me to go places that I couldn't go otherwise or make pictures that I couldn't otherwise, but um, yeah, so I've, I've tried to kind of I've been torn between these different worlds and I haven't felt fully comfortable in that photojournalism world for a while. And also haven't really been paid to do that kind of work for a while. So I feel more and more comfortable drawing work kind of from my personal experience and trying to create these open-ended narratives that allow the viewer to bring their own kind of reading and interpretation to the work instead of force feeding some narrative to you um it's like story 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 or caption and so that's why also i don't put text in the book along with the photographs but there's a list of image titles at the back which should give you a little bit of information without overloading the image and then there was a question from tom about how i print and how i make zines and i'm not sure if i'm going to answer this clearly but um I, I don't print my own zines. I outsource that because time is incredibly limited and precious. And I want to make objects that are of a certain quality. And I'm not going to be able to do that on my own. So for the first year of Seasonal Blues, which is a self-published zine series, I was printing with Smart Press. And recently, I've been printing with Conveyor Arts out of New Jersey. Is that this, Matt, or no? This is yeah, yeah. the last one of the first year. So it's an experiment that's been going on for about two years. So that was volume four, fall of 2019. And then this one is volume five, which is winter of 2020. And we had to 
slightly change the trim size for this, but printing with conveyor allows for the inclusion of vellum. So um, the poem in the front is now printed on vellum and the print quality has improved, which is a blessing because I make a lot of dark, hard to reproduce photographs and they're looking a bit better and more consistent in this publication. Um, typically, like I, I know enough about InDesign to be dangerous, but I'm not an expert. So again, peers and collaborators, I will typically tap a designer when I'm at the finish line of something that I need help for. You know, like the Invisible Yoke book, I worked with Deb Davis, who did the Invisible Yoke maquette back in 2013. She created a template that we've carried forward for these four books so that they're all the same size, shape, and feel cohesive and consistent with one another. But the Seasonal Blues series, I'm doing it on my own, trying to keep the overhead costs low. So I worked with a designer for this second year to kind of redesign and brand it a little bit. And then I'm just going to run with this until I feel like it needs another revamp. And then I'll tap a designer again, but I'm doing, you know, all of the CMYK conversions and prepping the documents for the printer and communicating with them about all of these different little details that make or break a publication and uh, trying to navigate that. Then Mount, uh, two, sorry, quickly question. Um, it sounds like uh, these are real learning places for you, which really help inform your book process. But are these available on your website? They're available through littleoakpress.com, which is the okay. publisher. And I'll put a link to mm -hmm. that in the chat. Um, mm -hmm. And before I address um, Nate's question, I'm going to grab something off the shelf to try and connect mm -hmm. the dots here a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And we probably have, I don't know how many other questions are in the chat, but if anyone wants to unmute after uh, Matt ask, answers this question, let's do that. So if we're, we're painting like the full timeline of books and things, Carry Me Ohio came out in 2016. I Love You, I'm Leaving came out in 2017. It's a little soft cover, funky book that Seba Editions published. Um, and this is the I Love You, I'm Leaving work. And to Nate's question, this is a series of work made in black and white primarily, but it was a, a mix when I started and kind of condensed it to be mostly black and white. And that has led me into another series that is actually a mix of color in black and white. And then in 2018, I published a collaborative book with one of my buddies, Jared Sores. It's a double-sided book. So Jared's got one side, I've got one side. It meets in the middle. <laughs> and for two photographers that largely photograph people, it was kind of a fun experiment to make a book that didn't have any human beings in it. So <laughs> Jared is also the, the person responsible for seasonal blues and for kind of little oak press taking shape because I'm in a rather depressive place at the beginning of 2019 when I'd been out of work for, I want to say like four months at that point. I think he just grew tired of hearing me bitch and moan. He was like, listen, man, just make something. Like, I know you got pictures, make something. It'll help you feel better. So I made a little zine called Does Anyone Dare Despise This Day of Small Beginnings? And sent some of those to people that I wanted to work for and sold enough to break even. And then I was like, oh, that was fun. He was right. And that kind of got me thinking about how I could create a house for the work to exist within. And then 
seasonal blues came about. So last year I did these four, volume one, winter, two, spring, volume three, summer, which was mostly when I was at the residency uh, down in Florida, the Rauschenberg, and volume four, fall, which is the one that Sib has. And that was kind of when I was beginning the full-time teaching gig. And then volume five, which uh, I've got a few copies of left in the studio, came out last month, but this is winter 2020. So now I'm, I'm pretty far behind schedule and I'm prepping volume six, which is gonna be spring of 2020 when we went under lockdown. So it's a lot of pictures of family. And then of course, other seasons to come. The zines are a batting cage for ideas. I assume that most of them are gonna be kind of ripped apart and recontextualized in other forms. But in a season I will make you know, thousands of pictures. And then I will whittle those down to a folder that I will then share with peers and colleagues, go through, make work prints from, move them around on the wall until things start to gel, and then chop, chop, chop until I can get it into some sort of coherent form. But that's been one of the, the lifelines to sanity that I've had during this time when I haven't been able to move through the world and meet people and make the pictures I might want to make. What are your work prints like? Are you, like how big you make them and how much time do you spend working on the prints or do you outsource that? I print on these little Hanamule uh, photo rag Barita four by six rounded edge note cards. Mm -hmm. And it's, I have them. they're pricier than, than they need to be for work prints, you know, and some of them are super sloppy. They'll have like, you know, printer lines on them or they'll be kind of crooked and it doesn't matter to me because they're going to go on the wall and then get moved around but over the years I've accumulated quite a lot of these and it's helpful I've got a flat file with a drawer full of these little metal tins that have labels on them for the projects and I can pull them out and re-edit resequence if I need to for a body of work for an upcoming publication it's also helpful when we're teaching in person I can bring those into the classroom and I'll turn some students loose on them say all right here's 100 pictures you got 30 minutes come up with an edit and sequence and then explain it to your classmates and that's a really interesting exercise because they don't have any of the knowledge that i bring to the reading of that work they just kind of work off of the images and what that communicates to them so that's always a really fun exercise to engage in thank you i'm familiar with that the tins and and I actually really love that size and I like the rounded edges. Um, but you're making me think too of what the impact that you're teaching is going to have on your work. Um, you know, just being that intimate with other people's work. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. it always feeds back together, right? Um, yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of self doubt when it comes to making and also teaching a lot of that fear of imposter syndrome. Um, mm -hmm. But when you get a great student who's really engaged and hungry and can watch their work grow and yeah, it's energy that I feed off of as well. Yeah, and I remember. I'm sorry. No, it's just when I was in design school, I had to come up with 40 uh, sketches a week and um, 
and it was fascinating because the um, that was clothing design, but the professors were actively, you know, they had clothing lines and companies, but as students, we were feeding them <laughs> a ton of inspiration and a ton of like trends. And it's it was very, very interesting to to look at that from the other side afterwards. Mm -hmm. So that's so gonna creative. be yeah, yeah. Are there, is, was there another question or were you gonna say something, Matt? Yeah, I was gonna answer the other part of Nate's question that I hadn't gotten to, which is mm -hmm. why only a 35? That, that was primarily what I was using for the invisible yoke. There are some pictures with a 50, some with a 100 millimeter, but I used all primes for, for that work. And then these days, it's mostly a 50 millimeter pancake on my medium format, which is like a 45 equivalent. Um, but I've also got, you know, a 110 that I use for a lot of portraits. And then on the medium format camera for the Mamiya 7, it's mostly the 80 millimeter, which is like a 60 equivalent. So I started to go a little bit longer, I guess. But for a while, I was appreciating the ability to fit as much into a frame as I possibly could. But 35 millimeter also isn't going to distort on the edges. So it felt like a pretty kind of straight and true way of looking at things and also allowed me the ability to get close or to kind of step back. Um, how many pictures do you, from each many of these images, I'm sure it's different, but how many shots would there be before you just choose one and do you crop a lot? I mean, like this last image that's up now, is that a crop or is that the image? Or is that something that was shot among a lot of other stuff? Well, the image here was made of my little brother when I was maybe 15, 16 years old, something like that. And it wasn't cropped. This was full frame. And that's the way I try and start my students off so that they're thinking about the edges of their frame and not assuming that they can go in and clean things up in Photoshop. I want them to realize that, you know, like the idea is to make it in camera as true to what you want it to be as possible. Um, and I started out shooting film and slide film at that so you know you had to be really precise when it came to exposure and composition because cropping really wasn't a thing that i could do um, and i think that that was a good way to kind of learn and build um, but the photographers that i admire um, use every inch of the frame really consciously i still do crop if i need to i'm not gonna you know leave some unintentional sliver in a picture and let it kind of detract from it but as much as possible, I try and make the image the way I want it to be. That's quite a prescient image yeah. in terms of your ability for composition. <laughs> and color. That's beautiful. That's great. So the most recent thing that I've made, which is still not officially in the world, but something that I've kind of been releasing little teasers of. It's this maquette, say hello to everybody okay, which is the years leading up to and during the Trump administration. And this is the first body of work where I'm blending color and black and white, film and digital, all into one kind of format. Uh, I was experimenting with this in the I Love You, I'm Leaving work that I was making in graduate school. So while this, you know, again, felt like a, a big, creative shift at the time. It's helped pave the way to other newer work such as this. And I did a 
self-published run of 25 copies with the intention of sending those to a few of my top publisher choices. I'm selling 15 copies of this with a limited edition, not a limited edition, a open edition print um, that's eight and a half by 11 for 300 bucks. And that price is meant to help me break even. So I'm hopefully avoiding bleeding money for these publications. Um, and I'm mostly selling these to collections or institutions and sometimes private collectors that are interested in both prints and book objects. But that's kind of the latest thing. And then over winter break, I've got two weeks left of teaching. Once finals are behind me, I'm gonna dive into looking through the last 15 years on a hard drive and pulling thousands more pictures into a folder for Mike. And then we're gonna get real busy early next year trying to give some shape and form to that work which is due in 2021, but you know what? If it gets pushed to the next year, so be it. We're gonna kind of let it be what it needs to be. I still have no idea who's gonna write the essays or what the text will be. And I'm assuming that we're gonna find some things that I've long overlooked in this process. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm trying not to be too emotionally attached to any of the pictures, but to view them with some uh, distance. And when you did these poems, were they commissioned or were to the go poem, with the work or? In, in the book here? Mm -hmm. This one, can, can't say commissioned, but I'd asked him if he would contribute something to it and he agreed and he was paid a small honorarium for his contribution. Um, mm -hmm. I think commission would be uh, giving it more credit than, than it, it should get, mm -hmm. um, but he was really generous to contribute something uh, and it felt like it really built on what I was trying to express. And then the Stevie Smith poem was contributed or suggested by Seth, the curator at the uh, Chrysler Museum and she's mm -hmm. passed. So that poem was an existing work written, I think in 73 or something, but again, kind of spoke to some of the emotional qualities we were trying to access in the work. Mm -hmm. I wondered if this person looked at the work or if you had a sense that this person was writing in a way that resonated for you with the work? It's a little bit of both. So Tim was also recommended to me by a friend, you know, again, asking around like, who's gonna be a good fit for this? Who's gonna kind of offer a different perspective and enrich the reading of the photographs? And then I approached Tim and he agreed and he looked at the pictures that I had, but he didn't see the finished edit. You know, he was kind of writing from what he'd seen of my work mm -hmm. online, I think mostly. Um, and then I believe his father passed away and, you know, like all of the writing got pushed back probably three months from where we'd kind of hoped to wrap things up and it was worth it in the end, giving things the mm. time it needed to, to exist and to be kind of thoughtfully shaped by the authors. I have to say that just given the title of the combination books zines, seasonal blues, etc. Um, there's a bit of a poet in you too. That's something that I think I had maybe suppressed or ignored for a long time. But if I think back to early modes of expression in high school, you know, I was playing music and I was writing poems and then, you know, kind of decided I had to be all in to photography or not at all. And I went all in for a long time and then realized I'd been closing myself off from a lot of other important mediums that are part of my creative being. 
Um, mm -hmm. So probably two years ago, yeah, it was in 2018, I had a collaboration with a poet named Doug Van Gundy, who's a West Virginia native and teaches at West Virginia Wesleyan. Um, and we got paired up to do this little grant funded project. And it was just such a refreshing experience coming from that world of editorial, like fulfill this expectation, check this box, make this picture. It looks like this, you know, there's no mystery, no magic in that. And it was the exact opposite with Doug, where we're like weaving around these mountainous country roads and he's <laughs> reciting poems to me and we're listening to music and uh, going back to his house. And I'm like showing him what I made that day. And he's thinking about poems like that's, I was like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. And after that kind of uh, it broke through some creative blockage and I began experimenting with paint just painting for the joy of it, um, realizing that not everything needs to be good, you know? Uh, sometimes you just have to make things. Around that same time, we got a piano upstairs that had been in a family storage unit for many years, and I tinker on the piano, and that allows me to, again, kind of express some things that I might not be able to get out in the photographs. Um, mm -hmm. So I've been reading more and more poetry, and it's definitely become more, more of a kind of constant thread through the work that it's music poetry those sorts of things all percolating on the edges yeah and amplifying um my i i was able to curate three shows this year um and one of them was based uh on an ee e. cummings a line from an ee e. cummings poem that i actually um he talked about feet but i turned it to i <laughs> as an E-Y-E, -E. um, but, and I can't tell you how many times poetry definitely helps me uh, form a context in, in both directions. I can take a poem and go to images. I can take images and go to a poem. It's like, it's very um, fluid, but your use of language is, um, it's beautiful. Um, you know, it reminds me of the picture of the, um, uh, your friend, it was Lisa, I think, is it mm. Lisa, that with her um, partner at the time. Um, to me, that's a visual poem. Thanks. And then when I hear some of your titles, it, they feel like the same weight. That makes sense. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. One of my largest influences is Eugene Richards and his first wife who died of breast cancer uh, uh, was also a writer. And so they collaborated on pieces. And I know that her influence is carried through his work and his ability to combine image and text. Um, so I think about his work and the way that he frames that often, um, which kind of connects to Nate's question in the chat, which is, how attached am I to transmitting specific social issues through your images? I'd say I've been less and less attached to that, but I definitely started, you know, studying photojournalism in school. I was like, I'm speaking about this one specific issue. And then I realized like that issue on its own, it, you know, it's like connected to all of these other things. So I've got to look at the larger ecosystem. And I think that's kind of what has begun pushing my work into these broader strokes, if you will, but the social issues are embedded within. So obviously there's issues of race, class, socioeconomics kind of running through all of the work. Um, more in the say hello to everybody work, there's the issues, 
you know, socio-political division uh, in America and how that, that, how that is shaping our day-to-day -day existence. But I'm trying not to be too kind of on the nose about it. I want it to be something you can read between the lines. And I think that also stems from the fact that like when I was younger, I had no political aspirations with my work. And as I've grown a little older, I've realized I can't make work and be a concerned citizen, you know, if I'm trying to be apolitical in this. I don't want to um, like bash people with my pictures, but I need to speak to the present moment. I need to speak to my concerns. And if I can't do that, then there is absolutely no point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough. Um, for unpacking all that. It is as rich as I anticipated. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm eager to see the culmination um, and, and really follow the evolution. I mean, I think all along that's what happened when I first was introduced to your work. It had that pull. Um, and it's just really fun to like, it makes me think of like, um, you know, moving the curtain over on the wizard. It's like cool to hear how all these pieces come together. So thank you for that. And um, if, if there's- Time to chat and the space to, to share the work. I'm great mm -hmm. for that. Um, I'm dropping a couple links in the chat to- Great. Um, the Sin and Salvation book and the Seven Cities book, which are both still available from Sturm and Drang, the publisher. Mm -hmm. um, all US copies shipped signed from my studio. So feel free to, to holler if you'll have any questions regarding mm -hmm. that. And same for the Little Oak Press, which also yeah. operates entirely out of my basement here in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, but thank you all for being here and for listening and for your great questions. Um, Feel free to be in touch if you would like. I can be of assistance in your all's creative endeavors. But Sid, thank you again for making time to chat. Absolutely, thank you so much. And thanks for putting the info in the chat. We'll amplify that. Well, yeah, you. great. Thank you all so much. And good luck with your grant writing, Matt. Much appreciated. All right, y'all take care. You too. All right, take care. Bye. Bye.